2: Are you tired of this hot summer and record-breaking temperatures? Well, hold on to your window units, because it seems our changing climate is here to stay.
0: The big thing is, is that because our, our systems are so dependent on the outside environment, including our weather and climate, it means that what may seem like a very small change in our climate, maybe a degree or two degrees warmer in the wintertime, for example, or the summertime, results in tremendous loss because our systems are so sensitive to those relatively small changes in our climate.
2: While Illinois won't face fires like the West Coast or hurricanes like the East, our major impact of climate change looks like a wetter and hotter climate. So what does that change mean for the people who live here? Do we have the right infrastructure in place to protect both the environment and the people? I'm your host, Arielle Ravenet, and today we take a look at what climate change means for Illinois and a group who's installing measures to reduce its impact. Let's get looped in, Chicago. Compared to other places in the country experiencing extreme natural disasters, a wetter and hotter climate may not sound that scary, but that doesn't mean there aren't real outcomes from this. When they say wetter, they mean it. Total annual precipitation in Illinois has increased five inches over the past 120 years, and the number of two-inch rain days has increased by 40% since the beginning of the 20th century. I spoke with Illinois state climatologist, Dr. Trent Ford. He said, a change in rainfall and heat also means spurts of flooding followed by times of drought, creating a whole host of issues. It affects our agriculture and the food able to be produced, creates floods like we saw in July, spreads allergens, and brings pollution to our natural water systems. And when it floods, there's a grosser issue on hand for water waste management in Chicago.
0: So having the combined sewer stormwater drainage system means that when we get those really heavy rainfall events, if we get to a certain point, there may have to be the decision of whether you release sewage into the into the river itself, or basically push water where we we start pushing it out to the to the lake and then you start messing with lake ecology. So it's a really, really hard decision to make. And with increasing frequency of those intense events, it means that those decisions may have to be made a bit more. So water quality and the management of the Chicago River, I think is a big issue with increasingly intense rainfall.
2: While we love a beach day or hopping in puddles after a big storm, this overflow of sewage into surface water has been linked to increased rates of diarrhea, illness and children. The Midwest is said to be one of the safest areas for people to live to fear climate change. Projected migration maps say that Chicago could see an influx in population that we haven't experienced in decades. So if we see a rise in people, then we also see a rise in waste.
0: We're dealing with these issues already. And then if you add that many more people, like I said, it can exacerbate some of those issues. And it's not not an argument to to stop, stop people from coming. But it is an argument for, hey, these sorts of things that we we really need, we're going to need them like 10 times worse in, in coming decades. So we really need to be getting ahead of it so that we're not playing catch up over the next couple of decades if the population of Illinois grows.
2: Humans create climate change. Climate change in turn affects humans. This reality can cause a lot of folks to feel hopeless for the Earth's future. But there's faith in humanity yet. While we've done a lot of damage over the last few hundred years, humans have also had a long history of helping the environment.
3: Illinois is a really interesting area. If you look at the kind of plant profile of the United States, you get all the forests of the eastern kind of half, and then you transition into this prairie. But if you look at just to our north, Wisconsin, Minnesota, just to our south, Missouri, Kentucky, heavily, heavily forested. So why do you have Illinois... Be this cutout. It's it's wet enough to support all these trees.
2: That's Phil Nicodemus, director of research at the nonprofit Urban Rivers. He and his team do conservation efforts on many of the waterways here in Illinois.
3: Now, going through and looking at the taking core samples of these lakes and finding actually, when there's a huge presence of Native American populations, there's also a corresponding deposition of ash at the bottom of these lakes, which suggests that humans were the ones setting fires to create better territory for something that they were interested in. And that created, that made, that could have easily made Illinois the prairie state. So something that we take for as being there the whole time may only be six, 10,000 years old. The same thing with the great lakes. Everyone's very concerned about, um, Asian carp and things like that, what they now call Kopi. Um, but the Great Lakes are only 20,000 years old themselves. And if you're talking about the current extent of the Great Lakes, it's more like three to 5,000 years old. So on an evolutionary time frame, these are blinks of an eye. We already have examples probably of how humans at a very wide scale have influenced the environment. So we've we've got in our history how to coexist with these things. It's not impossible. We just have to kind of shift away from this all-industry mindset, let's extract as much as we can, as quickly as we can, to a, let's, this needs to be a sustainable thing. This needs to be something that we build for a thousand years.
2: This concept of humans being a part of the ecosystem, combined with a hands-on approach to environmental conservation, is something that they have brought to their Wild Mile project. The first installation of the Wild Mile, located at 1550 North Kingsbury Street, is a 24-hour floating eco-park. With wood pathways to walk on and a free dock for people to board their kayaks and explore the river, this green space in the concrete city blooms helpful vegetation. The walk down the path is surrounded by various sized flowers of pinks and purples, some standing as tall as my shoulder, with bumblebees having a field day. These gardens are in hydropods, some in clay, floating in the river so that fish, bugs, and birds may all enjoy them as well.
3: We want to make sure that we're doing everything that we can um, to ensure that that is connecting ecosystems again. So we identify that it is hard for things to get from the top to the bottom to the water. So we try to devise plans to ease that. We try to add vines and we try to add woody debris and things. So we do something as simple as drop these trees in there. We create this really interesting and unique row of this like log jam habitat, but we've anchored it. It's not going anywhere. Um, it's win-wins. It's just, it's something that the MWRD doesn't have to do. We have a way of reusing this material and it's beneficial to all the fish and wildlife.
2: This floating park is the first of its kind in the nation and potentially the world, but they don't want it to stay that way.
3: it's our flagship project. That is something that we are using as a demonstration of how you would take this whole canal, this whole old industrial space, and do the whole thing. We use these technology, what we learn here, the community building that we learn here, and we're trying to take this to other places in this river system, but also everywhere else. Um, So the intention would be to learn from us, we can help you work with the Army Corps, we can help you work with manufacturers, we can help you plant selection, biology. So creating this network of these different places, but each one of these places is going to have their own flavor. Their community are going to be the ones that run these spots.
2: With water levels at an ever fluctuating state, I asked Phil, are these floating gardens built to withstand our new wetter and hotter climate?
3: The Nature, in a lot of cases, the ebbs and flows are expected. It's the extremes that really mess things up. That's the stuff that things can't handle. In this situation, you know, it's not as if these plants couldn't find a place in this environment. It's that there are too many extremes that they have to deal with too often. And so this technology, this strategy is based on smoothing out those extremes. You know, we're going to give these plants a stable platform that they're always going to be able to grow from. We're creating these kind of reservoirs that not only can kind of ride that stuff out, but also when everything is all said and done, there's a there's seed coming out from these things. They can go out and repopulate. So this kind of seems like the most obvious starting point, creating the baseline, creating the bottom or the top that these Extremes have to operate with it. So that's like one thing that we can engineer
2: for pretty well. Today, more than 70 species of fish live in the Chicago River. But it wasn't always like that. Decades of the river being used by the city and the pollution that followed led to there only being around 10 species of fish in the 1970s.
3: Everyone's kind of at the same point where... River was great for moving sewage and moving cargo and all hugely important to human society and human cities. Um, There's been this middle period where we realized how bad it was and then we kind of couldn't use it at all. Now it's on that swing back where it's starting to be cleaned, it's starting to improve, and now we're looking at the best and most efficient ways um, to revitalize these spots.
2: In Phil's words, their goals aren't economical. They're ecological. Essentially, they hope to set a new precedent for what the river should be used for.
3: And it's a really critical time in the city's history. All these old industrial tenants that used to be on the river are no longer on the river. They're moving out. They're moving elsewhere, uh, redeveloping. Um, So it's miles and miles of Chicago's river frontage that's being redeveloped probably within the next 10, 15 years. So if they redevelop that in a way that forgets about the river is very uh, standard. A lot of concrete, a lot of artificial lighting, salted all winter long. Um, Those are gonna be problems, and those are gonna be things that lock people out from the best use of the river for the next, you know, 100 years or so. So this is some cool thing we can take this little, here's our submerged basket. So not only are these things spitting oxygen out in there, but it's also, as you can see, like cooling. It's got a whole spot where it's yeah, nice yeah. and shady underneath.
2: Phil says it's hard to compare stats on wildlife of the past because people weren't necessarily looking for it then. But there is research they can do now.
3: Our first paper was detailing uh, 5%, 5% to 6% nutrient uptake from upstream to downstream. So as this water is passing by our roots, 5 to 6% of that nitrogen and phosphorus being taken up. Um, which is, it's well, it's an incredible feat, too, because, again, you're talking about a very small section of plants compared to a 150-foot-wide river.
2: When we come back from the break, we'll hear about why it's important for people to have access to nature and what the average person can do to help in this fight against climate change. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. So we've talked about what climate change looks like here in Illinois, but why is it important for people to have access to clean, thriving nature? Here's Dr. Ford again.
0: Study after study after study after study shows that humans' mental and emotional health is improved with exposure to a green environment. And so what that means is is that we can help to adapt to these impacts of climate change, maybe increase rainfall or increase extreme heat, and also reduce the vulnerability of the underlying population, both the ecological population and and human population.
2: Oftentimes, we see conservation efforts as taped-off sections of land for wildlife, which is important in its own right. But there's also a benefit to incorporating people and their needs into these projects.
0: Including humans in environmental restoration projects, it helps eliminate that kind of false boundary between humans and environment. And it also helps people kind of take ownership of the action itself. You know, we think about, we thought about for a long time, adaptation to certain things as sort of a gray infrastructure Sort of solution we build wider highways or dredge rivers deeper and that sort of thing. But kind of nature based solution is really the idea is, is going back to this these ideas that that nature is the best engineer for these types of problems and these kind of nature based solutions whether it be that kind of wild mile or urban greening where we're, we're increasing the amount of green space in some of these neighborhoods that have very little it has these dual benefits. It's got the benefit of reducing the impact of for example flooding or extreme heat. But it also has the the benefit of improving ecological health, which is extremely important, and human health.
2: When we talk about having access to nature, it doesn't look equitable in every neighborhood. The tree canopy coverage in Chicago is 16%. According to data from a 2020 tree canopy census by the Chicago Region Trees Initiative, the west and south sides have the least amount of trees. Chicago is investing $46 million over a five-year span to write this, but Chicago has a long history of having less green spaces in underserved communities. Equitable access to nature is another part of the Wild Miles mission. Their approach is unique in the sense that they didn't have full models for what the park would look like when they brought it to the community. They asked what the locals wanted to see, and they built something that met those needs.
3: Like, these are natural inlets that we have built our cities around, natural corridors for wildlife, all you gotta do is stop keeping them from being in there. You gotta start inviting them, and it's just, this is this is the forefront of equitability. It's already there for you. Um, you just gotta do a little bit of work to make sure that the people who have been left out of these spots are actually connected. And I think that's the biggest risk right now, is where people are more underserved, where people have been more cut out of things, are also where industry still is. And so I think there's a big problem where industry is blocking access to these water. But it doesn't have
2: to be like that. It really doesn't. Giving people access to nature is essential for their health. But it's also good for combating climate change. When people are exposed to nature, whether it be hands-on volunteering or a nice evening walk, this exposure can educate people and influence them to want to protect it.
3: And I feel like most people are really intuitively set up to really appreciate nature. I think if you cross political spectrums, I think no one's going to go out to the Grand Canyon and be like, well, this is stupid, you know? So our thesis, our focus really becomes like, you need to start creating avenues that that sort of wonder exists in the cities. You've got a couple million people here that are at risk of maybe never being able to get somewhere else where they can kind of be like, wow, this is, there's something bigger than me out there. There's something that's like this incredible thing that I plugged into.
2: The cool thing about humans centering themselves in the narrative around climate change is that it can look like building eco parks, but it can also look like advocacy and conversation. Ecologist Rachel Carson published Silent Spring in 1962. At the time, there were major sprays of pesticides with harmful chemicals that left wildlife dead, and people sick. The book documented what these chemicals did to ecosystems and waterways, giving people language to a problem that they were already noticing all around them. Silent Spring is credited with influencing an environmental movement that eventually led to the creation of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. While not everyone can write a revolutionizing book, there are things to be done at local levels.
0: I think the most effective ways of doing that are public activism. Well, in fact, uh, in a lot of cases what's standing in the way of, of effective climate solutions is local issues, whether it be zoning laws or antiquated uh, school issues, whatever it may be. And again, that, that can take a lot of different frames. It could be planting native or helpful plants along greenways in parks and on the river, for example, things like that. all of those things can uh, contribute in really important ways and I, and I say they're more effective, One person, you can get them to stop driving their car. But if you push for a redesigned city with effective public transit, now you're talking about thousands of people who can stop driving their car. And you multiply that by how many cities in the world. Now we're talking real change.
2: With all that is happening around the world and in our backyards due to climate change, it's easy to have a doomsday mindset. If our reality is a hotter planet, why do people still fight? I'll leave you with a quote from Silent Spring. Those who contemplate the beauty of the earth find reserves of strength that will endure as long as life lasts. There is something infinitely healing in the repeated refrains of nature. The assurance that dawn comes after night and spring after winter.
0: Really the kind of message for climate change is that what we do now when it comes to mitigation, it's reducing the amount of greenhouse gas emissions and through adaptation to reducing the impact of the warming we do have in the next few decades will reduce the impacts down the road.
2: Thanks for listening to this episode of Looped in Chicago. This episode was hosted by me, Arielle Ravenet, produced and edited by myself, Jim Hankey, and Lizzie Baumgartner. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and follow us on the Odyssey app, wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, follow us on social media, a WBBM podcast. We'll get you looped in again, back here next week. See you then.
1: We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio.